looking at the third, this is the third installment, and it's not a series, so you don't have to be here every week to get something out of it. This is the third, in, hopefully, I mean, this is the third installment of a series that I'm doing on um, the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to come and learn from Scripture this morning. We thank you, Lord, for um, the way that you reveal yourself, Lord Jesus Christ, to us through the words of Scripture. scripture you reveal yourself, the true word, um, the second person of the Trinity. And we ask, Lord, too, now in this um, short time, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see and hear and know um, what it is that you've done in our world, um, the way especially that the Holy Spirit has worked upon the prophets of old, um, through you, Lord Jesus Christ, and then all the way down to us today, so many thousands of years later. So we thank you, Lord, for your work in the world, and we ask, Lord, that you would work powerfully in our midst right now. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned, this is part two, um, really a six. And um, the first two weeks, two weeks ago, we looked at the Trinity. I figured, well, let's start with doctrine. And then when I got to studying about the Trinity and learning some more, don't worry, I already had studied some about it, but digging in again, I realized that the Trinity itself, the doctrine of the Trinity, which a lot of people have a hard time with, and whenever you dig into it rationally, what you'll find is that we always end up saying by the end of it, it's a mystery. <laughs> but it is a mystery, and it's a mystery, and yet what's so exciting about the doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine part was developed later. And some people think that's not an exciting feature of the doctrine of the Trinity. They think, well, why couldn't they have worked out rationally first and then let us all deal with it? Well, this was before the Enlightenment. And really what they realized was they began to reflect theologically on what they were already doing, what those early Christians were already doing. And the early Christians began first by worshiping Jesus. Remember, Jesus is Lord is the first confession of faith of any Christian. Anyone who says Jesus is Lord um, is a Christian. And that's, a, that's an exclamation of worship. And how could those monotheistic Jews now become Christians be able to say that so freely? must have been an act of God for that to happen. And so it started with worship, worshiping the Son, Jesus Christ. And then upon um, the coming of Jesus, at Pente or of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you see the disciples begin to reflect some more on that. And even in the New Testament, you see some idea in which there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, even if they hadn't worked out how all of that works. And we still haven't worked out how all of that works. It's a mystery that one day we will know fully, thank goodness, when we see our Lord face to face. But the working of the Holy Spirit um, is something we're going to be looking at all today, but I just want to finish off with that doxology piece by seeing um, those first articulations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Scripture and then in the earliest Christian literature. It's all um, worship all doxology. Glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory to the Holy Spirit. What is going on that would take monotheistic um, Jews into this place where they would say, no, we're worshiping Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Surely it is a supernatural act of God. So we saw that in the Trinity. We talked about the mysterious third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We talked last week about the Holy Spirit at creation. And then not just at creation with God the Father and God the Son. And there's some language in Genesis 1 that shows us that all three persons of the Trinity were there at creation, creating all that there is, all that we see. 
We talked about the Holy Spirit present at creation and present then also in creative acts. We talked about art. We talked about how for artists who um, believe in the Lord, creating is really a response to the fact that we've been created by God. Creating is um, an act of prayer and worship of our creator. Creating is something that we do because indeed as his creatures, we are made in his image. And so we mimic his creative activity. We say, my father does that. I know how to do that. Just like our children mimic our activity. Um, So this week, one of the things we're looking at, we're spending more time in the Old Testament this week than in the New Testament. And next week we'll go on to look at Pentecost itself and what happens in Acts 2. But this week we're looking at older uh, leadership all throughout the Old Testament. You know, I thought I'd take a small topic for 25 minutes. (laughs) In um, the Old Testament, when we see leaders, we see them, if you think back, Think back to Genesis and following creation and the fall, following Noah and um, the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel first and then Noah. What you see is that the fathers of the people of Israel, when they're small and they're really a family, remember you might have this in your family where your family grows to be too big for you all to be in the same room. We had this happen in my family. My family is spreading like wildfire. My three siblings have 11 children between the three of them. I think they're done, but we don't, you never know. I mean, and so whenever we get together for family holidays, you can forget about opening presents because all of those, you know, the, the eight of them that are under the age of eight just cannot abide sitting still for long enough for anyone else to open a present. I mean, it's just mayhem. Um, But we kept over the years, especially over the last 10 years, I loved seeing how my mother would get creative about family dinners. You know, first it was, well, we'll just add the new leaf into the dining room table and someone's going to have to sit in a little chair. And then it was, we're going to get another table from somewhere else. We're going to put it there. We're all going to try to fit around this T-shaped table that was huge. And now we've just resorted to having our plates in our laps because there's, there's no way we could all fit in the same space altogether. Well, the family of God in the Old Testament is the same way. Remember, it begins with Abraham and Sarah. God chooses Abraham and Sarah and calls them and says that from them he will make a great nation, not just a great nation, but many peoples as well that will come from them. And then they, they only have one son, but by the time their grandson, Jacob, has had his children, and then there are 12 sons. Now, we don't even hear about the daughters. We only hear about one of Jacob's daughters, so who knows how many daughters there were. 12 sons of Jacob, and then all of their children. You just think, well, they definitely didn't sit around the table altogether. Um, and so they just keep growing from there. But in the earliest stages of the people of Israel, they were small enough that the fathers themselves, the patriarchs, were the leaders of the group. The patriarchs were the ones who would decide if there was an argument or a dispute. The the patriarchs were the ones who would seek to discern the will of God. And the patriarchs were the ones who would say, this is where we're going to go and this is what we're going to do, even as they were listening to the Lord. But what you see later on is that the people get get to be so big Um, that they need prophets to lead them and prophets to guide them. And what you see about the first prophets in the Old Testament, the first prophet that you could think of chronologically is Moses, right? He is the prophet with a capital P who leads the people of Israel. Now they're stuck in Egypt. They've multiplied so much. There are countless um, Israelites there enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up the prophet Moses to free them. 
and then to lead them. And he's a spiritual leader as well as a military leader. He is the one who's going to lead them out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land. So we see that with Moses. His um, legacy is passed on to his assistant, Joshua. We also are going to look at the 70 in the Old Testament, how the 70 leaders um, that Moses asked to help him, that the Lord actually showed Moses he needed help, and he passed on some of his leadership to the 70. We're going to see how that works. We're going to look, um, they're in the book of Judges. All of the judges are considered to be both prophetic and then also to take on this role of military might and leadership for the people of Israel. Um, We see it with Elijah and Elisha now during the reign of kings. What we see is that the prophets took on the role, as I said, of military and prophetic um, capacity, but once there were kings, remember beginning with King Saul and then King David, um, then suddenly those two tasks were separated. And the king was the one who would lead the people of Israel out into the battles. The king was the one who would judge disputes. The king was the one who would make laws and govern the people. Um, So we're going to see. But still there are prophets like Elijah and Elisha who communicate messages from God directly to the king with the expectation that the king would then obey those messages from God, whether he did or not, um, makes for really great drama. That's why First and Second Kings is a lot of wild stuff that you see in there. And then um, those two books, the Bible. And then um, the great big prophets. We see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. What I'm going to look at is what you see with those prophets is that they are articulating this fact that the Holy Spirit is empowering them to say certain things. And so we're going to look at the Spirit of God upon all of these people. Hold on to your hat. Any questions before I keep going? Got to pause to take a breath anyway. Okay. Looking at Moses, remember Moses gets his call. He's run away from Egypt because he did a bad, bad thing. He killed um, an Egyptian man. And even he, having grown up within the court of the Pharaoh, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, Um, he would have probably looked more like an Egyptian than like a Jew at this time. And he kills another Egyptian, and he runs away. And the Lord meets him years later. Um, There he is, um, you know, as a shepherd of different flocks, and the Lord meets him here at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And Moses' response is one of great humility, much like this idea that Andrew so beautifully um, put forward for us this morning, that we're sparrows. Moses is like, I am a little sparrow. Are you kidding me? You don't want me to go do this. Before he had thought that he would be a great leader, and then he was so humbled by the people's lack of willingness to follow him that he thought, I can't do this. And that's right where he needed to be for God to actually be able to work through him. Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the Lord says, this response of the Lord to Moses in this moment of his weakness and his sense of inadequacy is something that we see all throughout the prophets that will come and the priests that will come and the kings that will come for the people of Israel. This answer of the Lord to Moses. The Lord said, but I will be with you. That's it. I will be with you. You don't have to worry about it. This is my job. Leading my people is my job, is essentially what the Lord is saying to Moses in that moment. And so as um, weak and inadequate as you are, that's okay. That's even better, actually, because then people will see my miraculous hand at work empowering me. I will be with you, and then he talks about the sign. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Um, then after they've come out of Egypt, remember they go back out in, in um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who's not an Israelite, meets up with him. And we're not going to read all of this. I'll skim it for you. But if you are someone who likes the visual aid, you can read it behind me, and I won't know that you're not listening. Um, but uh, the, basically, Moses was sitting there in the camp with hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and he was deciding their arguments for them. You know, they, it, he was like a judge in a law court, um, listening to their cases, listening to both sides, and deciding what should happen, deciding what, what justice would look like in that situation. And, his, and he's doing this from morning till evening. He is one tired puppy. And so his father-in-law comes in and sees all that he's doing and says, are you crazy? You can't sustain this. What are you doing? Don't do this. He says, I've got an idea for you. He says, look down here. What you are doing are not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And then he tells him, look for able men from all the people and let them judge the people at all times. They'll do all the regular stuff. They'll be the regular courts. You just be the Supreme Court, basically. And it will trickle up to you if it's really, really important and really, really hard to decide. Um, what a great piece of wisdom there in Exodus 18 for Moses. And so what you see is Moses does this. He picks leaders from among the people, and these leaders end up being like what the Sanhedrin would be in the first century. They are the great, 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 great grandfather of this deciding and ruling body within the people of Israel. These are the leaders of Israel. And they get to go up in Exodus 24 with Moses and Aaron and Joshua to get to see the Lord there. Um, and they have this wonderful theophany, which is a vision from God. There was under his feet the, God, the Lord God's feet, as it were a pavement of, sa- of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Just think of the bluest sky you've ever seen. Um, and so these 70 elders get to meet with Yahweh, God himself, to eat and drink there in his presence. And that's really meant so that they can be a part of strengthening and leading the people. Whenever we receive any kind of gift from God, we can just receive it. And also, it's meant to strengthen us sometimes for what lies ahead. If you um, have a day off from rest, you ever think, wow, I really needed that. And then when you get to the next, the end of the next week, you think, Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I had that day off. I really needed that. (laughs) Prepared me beyond what I knew I needed at the time. And that's what God is doing here with these 70 leaders. He's preparing them for leading the people of Israel. Well, what we see when we get to Numbers 8, and you're thinking, Deborah, how does any of this have to do with anything about the Holy Spirit? Finally, we're going to see a little bit about the Holy Spirit. Um, These 70 elders are gathered in, and the Lord says... um, to Moses, I will come down and talk with you and the 70, and I will take some of the Spirit, that means his own Holy Spirit, that is upon you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So Moses does this, and then the Lord does this as well. The Lord came down in the clouds, spoke to Moses, and took some of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that was resting on Moses, empowering him for leadership. And he spreads it around, puts it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Holy Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied miracles. They were speaking about truths from God. They were given this special ability to speak truths from God. And they didn't continue to do it. They didn't have as much of the Holy Spirit as Moses did. But still, God works through them. 
And later on, um, as a result of this, Joshua, these, uh, they're all up on the mountain here at this moment in Numbers 11. And Joshua, who's Moses' assistant, sees that there are two men who are in the camp who didn't obey and go up on the mountain. And these two men who were already named as being um, members of the 70, they, um, they start prophesying in the camp because the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And we see a little precursor to something that will happen in the New Testament. Joshua, the son of Nun, there in Numbers 11, the assistant of Moses, says, My Lord Moses, stop them. And Moses says to him, Are you jealous for my sake? And this is such a beautiful response. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them foreshadowing Moses there as prophet and leader of the people of Israel is, um, is prophesying about what would indeed happen. He didn't know it maybe at the time that he was prophesying, but when we look at the Old Testament, what we see is the Holy Spirit is no longer poured out just upon special people for special purposes among God's people, but the Holy Spirit, according to Joel chapter 2, is poured out upon all of God's people um, for the work of building up God's kingdom. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. Any thoughts about that? That was a lot. Don't want you to get too bored. It's a lot of Bible. That doesn't mean it's boring. It means it might be hard to follow. And I take jumps, too. So I'm a jumper. So if there's something I jumped over that you're like, I don't get that, just ask me. Yeah, please, Frank. Is the Holy Spirit the same as the Holy Ghost? Yes. Ooh, thank you, Frank. So as far as I understand, I don't speak German, but from the little bit of theological German that I know, Holy Ghost, remember that English has Germanic influences as well as Romantic influences linguistically, and English is very influenced by the German, especially older English. And so Holy Ghost in uh, German is Heilige Geist. Geist is the word for spirit, and when it gets translated into English, it got used for unclean spirits like ghosts, what we call ghosts. And it also got used for the Holy Spirit very early on in the English language. And so one of the things in the last century that's been done is in order to clarify that the Holy Ghost is not the same as evil spirits, ghosts that plague and that persecute and that some people believe in and some people don't, that are just sort of out and about in the world, the Holy Spirit is holy. That's where we just rest on that holy. He's totally other than anything else because he's God. Does that help? Well, it helps. <laughs> I'm so confused. Well, um, you can use them interchangeably. And where our church uses them interchangeably, right one is Holy Ghost, right two says Holy Spirit, we mean the same thing. We're not talking about a different person. I can promise you that. We're hoping that people get the accurate idea, which is essentially that the Holy Spirit is totally other than any other, if there are any other spirits that roam the earth, and Bible, the Bible would suggest that somehow there might be, but we don't have to worry about it because our God is Lord over all creation. And so we have nothing to fear from anything else. So the Holy Spirit is totally other, totally different category. He is God himself. Does that help? Any other questions? Okay. So Joshua also here. Um, Joshua is meant to follow Moses in the leadership of the people of Israel. And we don't see specific language about the Holy Spirit being upon him, but he is also set apart for leadership among the people of God. Um, and, he's, and the Lord says to Moses, Take Joshua, lay your hand on him, make him stand before the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. 
Okay, so this is uh, prophets. We see the prophets there that were um, temporal leaders as well as messengers speaking messages from God. We see in Judges as well that the prophets in the book of Judges, who are also called Judges, have the spirit of the Lord that rushes upon them for the purpose of governing the people of Israel. Here in Judges 3, the spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, um, see, I didn't make you read that one, aren't you glad? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Again, with Gideon, another judge there in Judges 6, the Spirit of the Lord closed Gideon. What a nice image. Closed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezerites were called out to follow him. Um, so, essentially, the Lord is giving victory through the empowerment of these leaders by the Holy Spirit. Later on, we see that the Holy Spirit is upon Elijah and Elisha, and that's what is meant when Elisha begs his, his mentor and the leader of the people of Israel, Elijah, that great, great prophet. And if you ever want some wild stories, go and read 2 Kings. You'll see a lot of wild stories. Elijah is departing. He's dying, essentially, and yet the Lord takes him away in such a way that it's mystery. He doesn't actually die. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Please don't ask me about it now. <laughs> but um, Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What he means is not the spirit of Elijah, his own soul. What he means, I want some of what you have, the Holy Spirit of God. And not only do I want some, but I need some. And if you're gone, you better give me double for these people because we're in tough times. I need double Holy Spirit upon me. And, um, and, and then it happens. Elijah says, I don't know if that's going to happen. And then it happens. And the sons of the prophets witness this, and they say in 2 Kings 2.15, the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of the Lord, really, who had rested upon Elijah, rests now on Elisha. And remember here, the Holy Spirit is always for miraculous empowerment, and specifically for empowerment in leading the people of Israel. In other prophets, um, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, we hear that the Spirit of the Lord is upon the prophet. The Spirit of the Lord falls upon the prophet to enable them to proclaim this miraculous message from God. Hold on to your hat. I'm going to keep going. I stopped too long. Um, they're also in Micah. What we see with priests, priests we see early on with Moses. Remember, his brother Aaron is made a priest over the people of Israel, and all of his sons are a perpetual uh, priesthood throughout the generations of the people of Israel. We don't see specifically that there's a mention of the Holy Spirit upon them, but what we do see is that at the beginning of their stepping into this role of the priesthood in the Old Testament, they are anointed. And the anointing with oil from the outside is a sign, was a sign for the people of Israel that those particular members of the people of Israel were set apart by God for a special task. And that's essentially what the Holy Spirit does among the leaders of the people of Israel. He rests upon them just like the oil would be upon the head of the man who was um, consecrated as a priest, set apart. That was like their ordination as a priest. We're going to have an ordination in December here when Stephen McCarthy is ordained to the priesthood. It's going to be wonderful. Come and see it if you've never seen it. Um, there's that moment of setting apart and saying, this person is specifically going to be a part of building up God's people. 
and that's what they did in the people of Israel. Now we don't have priests like there were Old Testament priests because Jesus Christ himself is our great high priest. He is our only mediator and advocate. So we don't need priests in the sense that the Old Testament had these um, intermediaries between God and men and women, but we do have ministers and leaders. And so that same idea of ordination and setting apart and the empowering by the Holy Spirit through that sign of being set apart is there as well. When we get to kings, yeah, here we go. When we get to kings, um, we see that the kings of Israel are also often anointed with oil. And then simultaneous, or not too long after their anointing with oil, the Holy Spirit rushes upon them and empowers them for the work in front of them. Remember, the governing of that people must have been quite a task. They needed help with a capital H from the Lord. And you see when the Holy Spirit, we're going to read a couple of passages, when the Holy Spirit rushes upon Saul and David in particular, the language makes it sound as though they're being caught up. Have you ever been at the beach and a wave comes crashing over you and you lose your footing in the sand? And suddenly you're, you're swooped up off your feet and you're struggling. And, um, and if it's especially strong waves like there are on the East Coast um, with the Atlantic Ocean, then you get tumbled and you can't hear anything. And it's awful. But <laughs> this is a wonderful rushing. The Holy Spirit rushes upon them and it's almost as though they're being caught up, carried up. Their feet are swept out from underneath them. They're still rational and yet they see themselves doing things that they never thought they could do before. And they're not just so they can be these awesome heroes or something like that. It's so that the people, God's people, would be ministered to. And so later on in Zechariah, Zerubbabel is the descendant of David following the exile. And I love this one verse that Zechariah um, has for him. Then the Lord said to me, this is Zechariah saying it, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the king, essentially, not by my nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. All the things that you have to do are overwhelming, and they're too much for you, but they're not too much for me. Going back in time to King Saul, I'm not going to read all of this, but um, Samuel was told by the Lord, he was begged by the people to anoint a king. He was so reluctant to do that because it meant that they had rejected the Lord as their king and ruler. They wanted some kind of handsome man who had really strong armor to go out in front of them in battle to wage their battles and do really well at it. And that is what they were asking for. And um, the Lord said, I think they're going to regret this, but we'll give it to them anyway. Let's give them what they want. And um, Samuel, so Samuel, in obedience to the Lord, takes a flask of oil, remember that anointing from outside, a greasy forehead, and he goes and pours it on the head of Saul. And he kisses him and says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince? over his people, and you shall reign. And then he gives him three signs that he is, in fact, going to be this king over the people of Israel. And I'm not going to go through the three signs, but if you go back to 1 Samuel 10 on your own, you can find them. They're really kind of interesting, wild and wacky signs. Signs are really helpful things, aren't they? We're told not to ask the Lord for a sign, but sometimes you just need it written really clearly. You just need, Lord, I really need to clearly know what to do. Will you just show me? So um, the Lord gives him the three signs. He fulfills the three signs. And as, um, as Samuel prophesied, then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with these prophets, with this whole group of prophets. And indeed, King Saul, one of his first acts as king, was that these three signs were fulfilled 
that came to pass that day. And, um, and suddenly, the sign that the Spirit was upon him was this outward prophesying. It was almost as though the Lord showed the people through that miraculous outward act, this is the man that I've given to you. This is the man who's going to lead you. So follow him and listen to him. Okay. King David. And then I'll take some more questions. And then we'll talk about Jesus real quick. Um, <laughs> King David. So um, in, um, in Second Samuel, at the end of King David's life, um, we hear him say um, something that's really beautiful, but I'm going to go backwards in time real quick. In First Samuel 16, when the Lord um, tells Samuel, remember Samuel anointed Saul as king, and then the Lord rejected Saul because he totally disobeyed him and really stopped believing in the Lord. And that can't happen for the king of the Lord's people. And so he tells him to go out and anoint David. And you know the story of the anointing of David. Um, the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. And I always remember Frank Limehouse saying, well, I hope he doesn't look at my heart because then I'm in big trouble. It's really good. Um, but there is David. He doesn't actually have anything outward about him that would commend him to the people as a king. He's too young. He's too short. He doesn't have armor or training as a man of war. And yet, the Lord says, this is the one. Arise. He's cute, but he's too young. And <laughs> I know you're all reading that, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. He's cute, but that's not enough. That was like a there, there, you're so cute kind of thing. The Lord said, arise, anoint him. Says this to Samuel the prophet, for this is he. And so Samuel, hearing this message from the Lord, takes the horn of oil and anoints David in the midst of all these older brothers who were far more qualified to be king. And here's that same thing that was said about Saul. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that point forward. Rushed upon David. He was carried along by God's own Holy Spirit, empowered miraculously beyond his own ability to say and do things to govern wisely for the people of Israel. Does that mean he still made mistakes? Oh yeah, and we know about them in Scripture. But it does mean that the Lord empowered him mightily for this work of um, leading the people of Israel. And indeed, at the end of David's life, he says about himself, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he, the Lord, dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. At the end of his life, he's so thankful that the Lord has indeed given him his own Holy Spirit for the task of leading his people because um, he couldn't have done it otherwise. What does all of this mean for us? Well, Jesus Christ himself is the true prophet, the true king, the great high priest. Those three categories of leadership in the Old Testament where individuals were given a special measure of the Holy Spirit, that's the only time when um, a person is given the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, except for the artist Bezalel, who we talked about last week, who's given um, the Holy Spirit so that he can create the beautiful tabernacle and so that the people of God can worship in the midst of great beauty. He's given extra skill. But those other three kinds of people need the Holy Spirit Otherwise, the people of God are going down the tube. Um, they need those people to have God's own Holy Spirit. 
but they all point forward to a time to come. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, look ahead, and he's prophesying here. Um, This is the Lord speaking. I will raise up for the people of Israel a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak, I myself will require it of him. The people of Israel look forward to a day when there would be a prophet with a capital P who was so great like Moses and even greater than Moses. And we see this in Isaiah. Behold my servant, Isaiah 42, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Isaiah is looking forward to a time when there would be a prophet of prophets. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Again, this expectation of the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, from Isaiah 61.1, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And that was Jesus' first sermon that he preached in Luke 4 in his hometown. He knew that he was the coming Messiah. He knew that he was the one who would bring the true message of God from, God, uh, from the Father, the message of grace and peace of the gospel. And Jesus himself is indeed also the great high priest, as the book of Hebrews mentions in um, chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus is also the king that was expected, that God promised in 2 Samuel um, 7 that he would give to David, a king to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. And so in Jesus Christ, we see that um, the Holy Spirit dwells upon him in full force. Not that he needs it. He's fully God. But in his humanity, he's suddenly able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to do something that no other human being has ever been able to do. Not just because he's God, but also because he's the human being upon whom the Holy Spirit rests in a way that he has never rested before. And so for us, as believers in Jesus, as we are in Jesus Christ through faith, God's own Holy Spirit is made available to us. Um, He empowers us for particular tasks. Have you, have you ever been up against a brick wall and you just thought, God, there's no way out of this for me. I have no idea how this is going to happen. I need you to do this. I need you to make this happen because there's nothing else. I've got nothing here. You've got to make it happen. That kind of empowerment by the Holy Spirit is the kind of thing God delights to do, and it's the same kind of action um, that God has been doing throughout all of salvation history, um, first through prophets, priests, and kings, and then upon Jesus, and now upon Jesus' people. So let's pray. Um, Oh, Holy Spirit, come, we ask. We need you. (laughs) We need you, Lord God. Um, Thank you, Lord, that you belong to all those who believe in Jesus. And so we ask for each one of us in this room, as we're facing the unfaceable, as we find ourselves in circumstances beyond our control, as um, we find ourselves in need of a miracle, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would send your Holy Spirit to empower us um, 
to empower us with your grace, to empower us with wisdom, to empower us with discernment, all for your glory's sake and for the benefit of your people. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.